John chapter 5, verse 5 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest something worse happens to you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. This is the word of the Lord. You know, growing up in Tennessee, I... And, and being saved in a Southern Baptist church. Um, I remember very vividly at the end of each and every single service, this thing that they call the altar call. Um, that's basically uh, a time when unbelievers who may have been present in the room were urged to come forward and or at least to pray a sinner's prayer, and then to come forward and show everyone that they had actually done that. And the appeal was always something like, now if you prayed that prayer, Jesus says, if you're ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father and his holy angels. So you don't want to be ashamed of Jesus before men. Why don't you come down front and show everyone that you prayed that prayer and prove that you're not ashamed to own him. I could rail against that for a little while, but we won't do that this morning. There's another part of that altar call that I really wanted to start by looking at today. And um, there's another part, another element to that altar call that always rubbed me the wrong way. And that was the appeal that the pastor would make to the believers who were in the room. The pastor would often say something like, maybe for some of you in this room, you have already been saved. You've already prayed that prayer. You've already asked Jesus into your heart a long time ago. He is now your Savior, but you still need to make him your Lord. Now, it may not have hit me the first time I heard that, but after a year or two of hearing that appeal every single Sunday, twice on Sundays, actually, Sunday morning, Sunday night, I started having a real problem with what was uh, underneath that kind of a statement. Is it possible for Jesus to be your Savior if Jesus is not your Lord? 
What I mean by that, is it possible that Jesus has saved you and has promised and guaranteed that he will save you if his lordship is not being manifest in your life? See, that's the fundamental confession that the Holy Spirit births within our hearts when he brings us to salvation, right? This is 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, that it's by the Spirit of God that we are empowered to say, Jesus is Lord, not just Jesus' is Savior. That's the, that's the fundamental declaration that we go out into all the world proclaiming to every creature under the sun. Jesus is Lord. Repent of your sins and submit to him. That's the gospel call. Is it at all possible that Jesus would be willing to save you and be your savior regardless of whether or not you obey his will. Right? Isn't that Luke chapter 6, where Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet do not do what I say? What we learn throughout the testimony of the Bible and what we see at work in our text today is that if Jesus is not your Lord, Jesus will not be your Savior. Like I said a couple weeks ago, God's grace is free, but it's not cheap. It was secured for us through the blood of His only begotten Son, and it demands of us a response that upholds the worth of what was given to secure that grace for us. And the essence of what that grace demands of us is simply this, one word, holiness. Holiness. That's what we see in the, the main verse that we're going to focus on today in John chapter 5, that, that when we experience grace, no matter what kind of grace that is, common grace, saving grace, special grace I mean, no matter what kind of grace we experience from God's hand, we must respond to that grace appropriately. And the only appropriate response to grace is to worship God with thankfulness in the splendor of holiness. Holy attire, as the Psalms say. So with that in mind, that's the direction we're going. Would you pray with me? And ask for the Lord to bless us as we consider this weighty topic in this rich text. Heavenly Father, we bow before you together as one body united in the name of Jesus Christ. We bow before you confessing your holiness, Lord. Confessing that our greatest desire is to see that holiness manifest throughout the whole world that your name would be hallowed, Lord, and that your kingdom would come in all its fullness and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, that Jesus' name would be lifted high, that sinners would be saved, that the church would be strengthened, that the glory of our God would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. God, that is our, that is our desire, the burden on our hearts that we share by your grace. 
And Lord, we pray that, that, that right now in this time, as we sit under your word, as we sit together listening to the preaching of your word, as your spirit applies your word to our hearts in the exact way that each one of us needs it applied, we pray that your name would be hallowed in this service and that we would worship you appropriately. Lord, would you please give us grace, give us love for your name. May our greatest ambition truly be to do that which is pleasing in your sight through our Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, we ask for that grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So today we are mainly going to focus on John chapter 5, verse 14. Here, Jesus finds this man again after he had left him by the pool of Bethesda. And he says to him, see, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest something worse happens to you. See, you've been made well. Sin no more, or else something worse will happen to you. There are a number of things that we're going to notice from this verse about the demand that grace places upon us. But the main point that we're, that we're uh, driving at today is simply this, that Christ's grace demands of us holiness. Christ's grace demands holiness. And as we walk through the sermon today, we're going to unpack what that means by asking six different questions. So point number one, Christ's grace demands holiness. We see that in that central command of John 5.14 where Jesus says, you have been made well, now sin no more. Sin no more. Now that's a command and that's a continual command. That is a command that this guy was supposed to be obeying over and over again from that point forward. Now, many take this statement from Jesus as an indication that this man had suffered his debilitating disease as a result of some sin that he committed in the past, right? That like Jesus has come and healed him of the effects of that sin that he committed a long time ago. And now Jesus is telling him, now listen, you've been made well. Don't commit that sin again or else something worse is going to come upon you. Well, there may be some truth to that. It, it may be that this man was sick because of some certain sin that he had committed in his life 38 years prior. But the reality is we're not told <laughs> that that is the case. Nor are we told that that is specifically the sin that Jesus is talking about. What is clear is that when Jesus commands this man to sin no more, he's not he doesn't seem merely to be speaking of some particular sin. He's speaking about all sin across the board. We could translate this or we could understand this in this way, where Jesus comes to this man and says, you've been made well. From now on, do not practice sin anymore. Don't practice it. Don't do it. That is, Jesus was calling this man to respond to grace by devoting himself to living a life of holiness, that is the essence of this command, that he would be holy. 
Now we see that, and you say, well, I don't see the word holy there. Where, where do you see the command to holiness? Well, we see it in this negative command to sin no more. If I'm, if I'm going to obey the command to sin no more, that implies a positive command as well. For example, if I'm, if I'm no longer going to pursue sin, what am I going to be pursuing? I'm not going to be stuck in neutral zone. There's no such thing. You are always either pursuing sin or you are pursuing God. There's no in-between. So if I'm not going to be running after sin, if I'm going to obey Christ's command to sin no more, then what am I going to be pursuing? I'm going to be pursuing God. I'm going to be pursuing righteousness. I'm going to be pursuing goodness. I'm going to be pursuing purity. In other words, I'm going to be pursuing holiness. That's the only right response to grace. And Jesus demands this man to show that response with his life, that he would respond to that grace by living a holy life. Now, now at this point, we need to pause and we need to ask the question, what does holiness mean? We're talking about Jesus' command to respond to grace in holiness. We need to begin by understanding what holiness even means. I was tempted to let, you know, open up for audience participation here. What does holiness mean? I'm not going to do that. But what does holiness mean? Let me start by saying what holiness is not. Holiness is not necessarily sinlessness or sinning less. Holiness is not perfectionism. Holiness is not merely moral improvement. In essence, what holiness is, holiness speaks of separation. Separation. If I'm pursuing holiness, I'm pursuing separation. Now, separation involves two different things. I've got, number one, separation from something. And then secondly, I have separation to something. So I'm being separated from this thing over here in order to be separated unto this thing over here. When you're pursuing holiness, it's not enough for you just to stop committing sin. It's not enough for you just to have moral reform. It's not enough for you to turn over a new leaf and to clean up your life. Holiness is not pharisaical, legalistic, external moralism. Holiness is detachment from sin partnered with a genuine, sincere, and ever-deepening attachment to God. That's holiness. Holiness is detachment from sin partnered with genuine, sincere, and ever-deepening attachment to the Lord. So like, that's the calling, 1 Timothy 4, that we would discipline ourselves for godliness. Just another word for holiness. It's Godwardness in all of life. It's Godwardness from our affections. It's Godwardness from our minds. It's Godwardness in our actions. Holiness is practical. Holiness is real. Holiness is substantive. And it's defined as a pursuit of God with all that you are. That's holiness. 
a Godwardness with all that you are. Now that gets to the heart of, of holiness. Holiness is not merely about rule following and legalism, even though we do have a law that instructs us regarding what holiness is. Holiness is not legalistically following that law. The focus of holiness is, in essence, walking in fellowship with God. I believe that one of the main reasons holiness is missing from the majority of pulpits and from the majority of Christians' lives in our country is because of a misunderstanding about what holiness truly is and what it involves. For many, holiness brings to mind nothing but legalism or pharisaical religion. But all that that shows is the shallowness of what most people's relationship with God truly is like. When you call someone to holiness and their knee-jerk reaction is, that's legalism. All that shows is the shallowness of their own relationship with the Lord. Because holiness is about, it's not about rule keeping, it's not about law working, it's not about legalism. Holiness is about expressing thankfulness to God for what he's done in your life. Holiness is about loving God with all that you are, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Holiness is about worshiping God with all of your life. Holiness is about fellowshipping with a holy God. Now, if you want to know the glory of a relationship with God more intimately, if you want to know the glory of having more intimate fellowship with God in your life, if you want to know in greater measure the joy and the thrill of having the light of his countenance shine more abundantly upon you, if you want deeper personal dealings with the Holy Spirit in your life, and you want real, meaningful relationships with your brothers and sisters in the church, what is the path forward to gaining those things? It's the path of holiness. The road to greater intimate fellowship with God and having the light of his countenance shining more abundantly upon you and having deeper personal dealings with the Holy Spirit and truer, more intimate relationships with one another in the church, the road to getting those things is the highway of holiness. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7-8 through 8 makes that case for us where it teaches us that our fellowship with God and the Holy Spirit is absolutely dependent upon our following his calling to walk in holiness. Because God didn't call us to himself in uncleanness, but he called us in holiness. And he who opposes this does not oppose men, but who does he oppose? He opposes God who gives his spirit to you. If you oppose God's calling upon you to walk with him in holiness, then he will, simply put, he will not supply you with the fullness of fellowship in the Holy Spirit that you could have. We're not hyper-Calvinists here. You have a real walk with the Lord that needs to be cultivated by his spirit. And the path to doing that is holiness. So when Christ consecrated this man to be a recipient of his grace, and he singled him out from the multitude of the crowd sitting around this pool of Bethesda and showed him this special kindness. The only appropriate way for that man to respond was to, con uh, was to um, consecrate himself 
to live for the God who had shown that grace to him. That's what God's grace demands. It demands holiness. And we define holiness as Godwardness in all of life. Now, a second question we want to look at this morning. Where does our pursuit of holiness begin? When Jesus comes to this man and he says, sin no more, where does he draw his mind to first before that command is given? Where is the, in other words, where is this man supposed to begin pursuing holiness in his life? Well, with what Jesus teaches this man here, what we see exemplified anyway in his interactions with this man, what we find is that true holiness begins with seeing and recognizing God's grace in our lives. Right? Because Jesus didn't come to the man with the, with, at, at the very first saying, go sin no more. He drew his attention to something prior to giving him that command. In John 5.14, Jesus begins to talk with this man by saying, See, you have been made well. Now, in light of that, go forth and sin no more. Now, it's really important for us to pay attention to what Jesus is doing right there. Before Jesus commands him to turn away from sin, he calls him to realize what God, by his grace, has worked into his life. Don't you see what God's graciously done for you? In other words, don't you see what God has graciously accomplished in you? Now respond to that appropriately. Stop sinning. In other words, Jesus is rooting obedience in the rich soil of grace. That's the point to take away there. Where does our pursuit of holiness begin? It begins with the rich soil of God's grace already working in our lives. It's important to understand that. That relationship is never reversed between holiness and obedience and grace. Grace never grows out of obedience. What I mean by that is you're never giving yourself to work unto grace. Grace always produces obedience. We begin with a a grace-filled relationship with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And out of the richness of that gracious relationship with Him, holiness is birthed. I challenge you to search through all the Scriptures. You will never find God calling His people to live lives of holiness without first appealing to all the grace that He's shown them as a motivation for pursuing it. Even in the law, even with Israel, God does not call them to bear obedience to the law apart from appealing to His grace first. This is Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, right? Or verse 2. Right as God's about to give the the ten words, the ten commandments to Israel from Mount Sinai, He begins with this preface. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. You see what God's doing there? He's not merely calling them to obedience. He's calling them to recognize grace that had been manifested toward them. And let that be the motivation for pursuing obedience. Right? So even even the law of holiness revealed in the Ten Commandments is rooted in God's electing and redeeming grace. He chose to be their God. He chose them to be His people. And then He proved that He had 
bestowed that grace upon them by going down to Egypt and redeeming them by his power. Now his demand was simply for them to obey his commandments in a response to the grace he had already shown them. Now that's, same, that's the same reality for us in the new covenant. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. We are called to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, and we are called to perfect holiness in the fear of God. But what's our motivation for doing that? Earning salvation? Earning a place with God and glory? No. Paul says our motivation for that is the fact that we have already been given God's precious and gracious promises. And it's in light of those promises already given that we pursue holiness for his glory. So holiness in the Christian life is rooted in grace. That's the beginning point. It's not, never the other way around. Now, number three, third question. What if our experience of God's grace does not lead us to pursuing holiness? What if an experience of grace in our lives does not lead to the practice of holiness? How are we supposed to understand that? Like this man. It seems from John chapter, uh, it seems from John 5, 15, that this man actually did not respond appropriately to the grace that Jesus had shown him. He became a tattletale. He went and told on Jesus to the religious leaders. When God's grace in our lives does not lead us to seek after holiness, then in the words of 2 Corinthians 6.1, we are guilty of receiving the grace of God in vain. When God's grace in our lives does not lead us to pursuing God in the pathway of holiness, we have received that grace in vain, in emptiness. Which means that God's grace is not accomplishing in us its intended purpose for which it was given. So Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, for example. It says that when we truly receive the grace of God that brings salvation, that grace actually accomplishes something in us. What, what does it accomplish in us? Oh, in verse 12, it says that when that grace comes and we truly receive it and we receive salvation through grace, that grace actually teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Let me tell you something. If the grace of God in your life is not leading you to do that, then the grace of God is not working in your life. The grace that brings salvation brings it along the pathway of sanctification. If you have been justified before the throne of God through the blood of the Lamb and by His righteousness for you, if you've been declared righteous in the sight of God for Jesus' sake, it will manifest in a life of being sanctified for His glory. If you have no sanctification, if you have no holiness, then what does that say about you? It says that you have not yet received grace because that's what grace accomplishes in us. 
What the grace of God, uh, excuse me, where the grace of God does not accomplish holiness in someone's life, that person has not yet truly experienced it. May have experienced grace in some measure, but he has not yet truly received it. That leads to another question. What happens if we don't respond to God's grace the way he demands? What happens if we don't respond to grace by turning away from sin and living a holy life for the glory of God? Well, in that situation, we are guilty of abusing the grace that Christ has given us. Last week we saw that Jesus called this man to use the grace that he had poured into his life, right? John 5, 8 When Jesus is healing this man, he commands him to get up, take up his mat, and go walk. What is that but a a call for him to walk and to live in the fullness of the healing grace Christ had given him? But what we see in John 5.14 is that Jesus warns him that if he did not take care and make sure that he used that grace appropriately then he would be abusing it and he would suffer the consequences for that. Jesus says in John 5, 14, see, you have been made well. God has given grace to you. He's healed you. He's made you well again. Now don't abuse that grace, John 5, 14. Sin no more. In other words, don't use the grace that's now been given to you to continue living a life of sin Use that grace to pursue God. And you notice what happens, the punishment that Jesus has warned this man about if he refuses to do that. If he receives the grace of Christ and turns it into some some tool that he can use to continue living his life of sin, what will be the outcome? Just say it. What? Something worse is going to happen to him. Now look what Jesus is doing right there. He is warning this man. Do you see that? He's not just fluffily appealing to him to come receive grace. He's warning him, if you don't receive grace appropriately, you're going to have something worse happen to you. This is exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 10 to his disciples. He says, don't fear men who can destroy the body and after that can do nothing else. But then he says, fear the one who after destroying the body can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's appealing to this guy and warning him. Now, this this is a parenthesis and I feel kind of dangerous here. Like we could go on and on on this point. But let me just state it this way. Jesus was not afraid to threaten people. Do you understand that? There are times when the grace of God manifests towards us by threatening us and warning us about what will happen if we don't turn from our sin. That's not a development from hellfire brimstone preachers of the fundamentalist age. This is, this is just scripture, right? This is Jesus. This is Jesus coming to us and saying, listen, there is a real threat. There is a real danger that that is facing you. And if you won't let go of your sin and turn to me, you will suffer in it. 
clearly this is a warning. But the question is, what is Jesus warning this man with? What, what is he holding up before him and saying, this, this worst thing, if you don't turn from your sin and, and, and follow God with the grace that's been given to you, this worst thing is going to come upon you. What's Jesus talking about when he says that? Is he simply talking about a worse form of a disease that's going to come upon him? Or, or like, rather than suffering another 38 years from that debilitating disease, he's going to suffer 39 years? Is that what Jesus has in mind when he says something worse? No, I don't think so. When Jesus says something worse will come upon you if you don't let go of your sin, Jesus is talking about hell. You can see that in the context, right? Just further down in John 5, he begins talking about the resurrection of life and the resurrection of what? Judgment. Condemnation. What's worse than a lifetime of suffering in this age? 38 years. What's worse than 38 years of suffering and trial in this age? Being consumed by an eternity of suffering in the age to come. That's real, guys. I was telling someone the other day, Jesus, Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. You, you ought to, that ought to make you tremble before him. And that's what it's designed to do. It's not, it's not designed to, to cause you to run and flee away from God the way Adam and Eve did whenever they committed sin and they were so full of shame that they couldn't go back and face God, so they tried to hide in the bushes. That, that's not what this is designed to do. What this is designed to do is put some fire in your bones and cause you to run to God. See, there is a real danger that, that is facing me because of my sin. And if I won't let go of that sin and run to God, then I'm going to be stuck in it. That's what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord, guys. We don't hear much talk about that, but walking in the fear of God means walking with a true realization of who we're dealing with and what He can do to us as sinners before Him. It's a sad reality that the majority of people who experience God's kindness and grace in so many ways in this life will one day awaken in death or will awaken in the day of resurrection only to face God in His wrath. It's, it's a sad reality. You know, and I can't help but, but feel the weight and the burden of thinking that there may be someone even in this room who thinks that he or she is, has received the grace of God who will one day face God in His wrath. Jesus warned about that, didn't He? Matthew 7, 23, He said, On that day of judgment, there are going to be many who come to me saying, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not perform many mighty miracles in your name? Wasn't there abundant grace manifesting in our lives in your name? And Jesus says in Matthew 7, 23, he's going to say to them on that day, depart from me. I do not know you, you who practice lawlessness. That's a, that's, 
That's a, that's a reality that we all need to be confronted with. It's not about our profession, Lord, Lord. It's not even about our experience of, of some kind of grace like casting out demons, performing miracles. It's about whether or not we have a genuine, sincere attachment to the Lord that leads us to live holy lives. Right? Because that's why Jesus says they're going to be cast out. Because they were practicing lawlessness. They were sinful. They weren't holy. See, holiness. Jesus Jesus warns us, and he warns this man in John 5.14, that abusing God's grace will be rewarded with the worst of all possible experiences which is being driven away from the presence of Christ and being cast out into an eternity of separation from Him in hell. And here's the worst part about it, is hearing and listening to Jesus by His own royal decree declare that that is your right place. I, I, I shudder even to think about what it will be like for many people who have called upon Jesus as Lord, Lord, who will one day hear Him say to them, I never knew you. I, I never knew you. Your, your life didn't even show that you knew me, but you claimed my name. You took it in vain. Depart from me. I'm not trying to be theatrical, but, but, but do you understand? I mean, can you envision what that might be like. You pass into glory. You take your last breath. And, and, and for, in, in your empty hope, you, you, are, you are thinking that you're about to cross into the presence of God's glory and be welcomed into His house as one for whom Jesus has prepared a place. Only to get there and find that you're in exile in that place, and it is only right for you to be cast out. You're a stranger to God. That's terrifying. That's terrifying to me. I don't know if that's terrifying to you. I hope it is. Unless your experience of God's grace leads to a life of holiness, then whatever grace you have received has been received in vain. And abusing that grace will only lead to God rectifying that wrong in the day of judgment. Now, what does, what does living a life, how does living a life of sin abuse the grace of God? This is point five on the outline. What, why does continuing to live a life of sin make someone guilty of abusing God's grace? Well, there are three things I could think of offhand. Number one, you're guilty of abusing God's grace when you don't use that grace to pursue holiness. You're guilty of abusing God's grace because you're perverting it. You're perverting God's grace. This is like the ungodly people mentioned in Jude, chapter, uh, Jude verse 4. They're, they're ungodly people who pervert or who turn or who twist the grace of our God into a license for sin. 
How many people have I met who think they're in a right relationship with God because they have experienced some kind of God's grace upon them? Their bills are paid. They've got food. God's always given them a job. He's always taken care of them. Well, praise God for that. That is God's grace in that person's life. But has that person responded appropriately to that grace? That's the question. Or do they continue walking in that grace and using it as a tool to further their sin. God's provided money and food for me. Praise the Lord. Rather than glorifying Him in eating and drinking and whatever else they do, they use that food to satisfy their own sinful lust. Fill in the blank with anything else. That attitude that, well, we're all sinners and nobody's perfect and God is love and look how gracious He is towards me. Well, all of that's true, but if that doesn't lead you to actually practically walking in holiness before him in love and fear, then you are perverting that grace and using it to justify your sin, a sinful life. Number two, you're abusing God's grace by presuming upon it, right? This is Romans chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge others who practice sin and yet do the same yourself? You're sitting in judgment upon others, but you yourself are doing the same things. Do do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? This is talking about people who think they're in a relationship with God, a saving relationship with Him. Paul says, do you think that you who sit in judgment upon others and yet do the same things yourself, do you think that you're going to escape the judgment of God that's going to fall upon them? God shows no partiality. He's just. He's holy. He's perfect. He says, or do you despise or think lightly of the riches of God's goodness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? See, there's a purpose and there's a reason why God manifests kindness towards us in various ways every single day. And it is so that it would lead us or bring us into repentance. That, when we, that, that we would respond appropriately to His kindness by drawing near to Him in holiness. That we would be pursuing God and being holy the way that God is holy with the grace that He pours into our lives. When we don't do that, we are acting in presumption. And God hates it. See, God shows his goodness towards us in such glorious ways so that we would come to know how patient and forbearing he really and truly is. And that we would be wooed into a life of repentance and fellowship with him. But when that doesn't happen, we are living lives of presumption. We are taking God's grace for granted. And you notice what that leads to in Romans 2.5. When you presume upon God's grace and don't use it for its intended purposes, Romans 2.5 says, because of your stubborn and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. If we don't respond to God's grace with a life of repentance and holiness, then we are abusing that grace and we will suffer the consequences for it. Thirdly, So we abuse God's grace by perverting it. We abuse God's grace by presuming upon it. And now we see that we abuse God's grace. When we abuse God's grace, we are actually insulting the spirit of grace. 
Listen to Hebrews 10, 26 through 30. In verse 26, it says, If we have received the knowledge of the truth, right? Just not that we've just been made aware of it, but we've actually received it. We've, we've owned the knowledge of the truth, right? We've welcomed it ourselves. If we've received the knowledge of the truth and yet go on sinning, what's left for us? If we receive the knowledge of the truth and don't respond appropriately to it, what can we expect from the hand of God? Well, it says there, there's no longer, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Right? Numbers 15, you're, you're sinning with a high hand. In knowledge of the truth, you are sinning against what you know to be right and true. There no longer remains a, a sacrifice for sins. There's, there's nothing left to cover those sins. Verse 27, but only a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume God's adversaries. Why is that? Verse 29, because by continuing on in sin after coming to the knowledge of the truth, you are trampling underfoot the Son of God. You're treating Him with disdain. When you know the truth about Jesus Christ, that He came to live the righteous life we couldn't live, that He died the atoning death covered in our sin, taking our sin upon Himself and being crucified under the wrath of God, when you know the truth about what Jesus was doing to save sinners on the cross, and yet you continue living a life of sin, what you are doing is you are disdaining what Jesus has done. You're trampling over Him. You're treating him as unclean and unholy. You're treating him irreverently as something not worth your, your devotion. Trampling underfoot the Son of God. And by your sinful and unclean behavior, look at this, you are declaring that you regard as unclean the blood of the covenant by which Christ was sanctified. You read John Owen on that. This is talking about Christ, not us. But then notice that last part. By receiving the knowledge of the truth and yet continuing to live a life of sin, we are also insulting and outraging the spirit of grace who was sent by Christ to minister the truth of God's grace to us. You live in contrary to the spirit of the Lord when you, in the knowledge of the truth, continue to live in sin. Now, if this man in John 5 gratefully and joyfully received the grace of healing and yet did not respond to that grace by seeking God in a life of holiness, then he was guilty of abusing God's grace. He was guilty of insulting the spirit of grace. And as Jesus says, one day he would face something worse than what he had known to that point. Now, my friends, I know that sermons like this are not the easiest to listen to. But I don't want you this morning to come away without recognizing that this warning Jesus gives to this man is set squarely before each one of you. So if, 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 if you've zoned a little bit, I know that happens, I get it. But just, just kind of focus in for a moment with me. The warning that Jesus gives to this man 
equally applies to every single one of you in this room. We are not exempt from this call to holiness, nor are we exempt from the warning that Christ gives if we don't pursue it. You follow me there? God shows no partiality. We will reap what we sow. Are there areas in your life right now, not asking in someone else's life, I'm not asking in your spouse's life or or your kids' lives or, or your friends' lives or anyone else's life here in the church. I'm asking about you personally. Are there areas in your life where right now you recognize you are not responding to God's grace the way you should? What are those areas? Let's just, let's just throw this out there. We're all in that boat, okay? There are areas in all of our lives where we are not living up to the grace that God has given us. We're not responding appropriately to it, I mean. What are those areas? Is it lying? You're just a perpetual liar, and for some reason you can't stop lying. Is it cheating? Cheating on your taxes, cheating on a test, cheating in your business practices? Is it committing adultery? Women, are you are you desiring that your husband be like some other man? Fantasizing about that? You're reading those trashy love novels and being discontent with the man that God has given you? Men? Are you spending your time looking at other women and thinking that you wish your wife looked more like that? Are you actually committing adultery? Have you, have you acted upon the impulse, I mean? There are, this church knows adultery can stay hidden in a person's life for years. We've had to discipline an elder at this church in the last 10 years over it. I don't want to presume that there's no one in this room who might be guilty of adultery. Are you committing adultery with your body? Are you committing adultery with your eyes, with your heart, and with your emotions? Are you becoming emotionally dependent on someone other than your spouse in a way that is inappropriate? What about dishonoring your parents, children? Are you dishonoring your parents, living in a way that is not pleasing to the Lord? Are you coveting things that the Lord has not provided for you, adults and children, right? Trying to keep up with the Joneses. Who can? Are you speaking or thinking ill of your brothers and sisters in this church? Abusing the grace of God that's given you through the church by thinking negatively of your brothers and sisters, 
by speaking negatively of them, complaining about them. Are we using, in what ways are we using the many blessings that God has given us to satisfy an unholy craving for the things of the world? And listen, you can, you can come up with any excuse to vindicate any behavior. You can find any good reason to spend your money on something. Well, I only bought the cheapest golf club that I needed. Right? Uh, fill in the blank. I don't know. What is it for you? Beloved, we need to take heed to Christ's warnings in these areas of our lives because Christ comes to us graciously and tenderly as a father, as a brother, even as a nursing mother. Jesus draws near to us and says, if you will not let go of that sin, something worse will come upon you. Are we taking heed to that? You know, you and I are called in Scripture to a life of holiness. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, it says, this is the will of God for you. What? What is it? What's God's will for you? Huh? Your sanctification. You know what that word means? It's your holiness. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, we mentioned it earlier. God didn't call us in uncleanness, but he called us in holiness. And you know what the words of Hebrews 12, 14 say. We're to pursue peace with all men and what? Holiness or sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord. You in this room are included in that no one. Okay? No one will see the Lord without pursuing holiness. Okay? Now, in light of that, that's what Christ calls us to. Here's our final question How do we live the kind of holy life that Jesus is calling us to live? That's what we're called to. We're called to holiness before the Lord. We're called to die to our sin to the point of shedding our own blood. Well, how often do we do that? Where do we go to find strength and encouragement to live the kind of holy life that God is calling us to live? Well, I think Jesus gives us that answer in John 5.14, doesn't he? When Jesus comes and he calls this man to die to sin and live to God, what's the beginning of his appeal? We've already mentioned it. It's grace, right? The beginning of the appeal is grace. Where the man is going to begin living this holy life before God is by setting his attention on the way that God's grace has already manifested in his life. 
In other words, he's not being commanded to pursue a sinless life, or, or let me rephrase that, to turn away from sin and pursue holiness. He's not being commanded to do that out of just some tough up, buck up, get, get yourself up by your own bootstraps and just get it done type mentality. That's not what Jesus says to him. He says, listen, man, listen. Look at what God's grace has already done in you. Look at the love that God's already shown you. Look at the mercy that He's poured out upon your life. And let that motivate you to turn from sin and live for Him. Well, that's where our pursuit of holiness must begin. But that's also how our pursuit of holiness is sustained. Isn't it? We begin our pursuit of holiness by looking to God's grace. And we are sustained in a life of holiness by continuing to look to God's grace. There's, there is no power for you to live a holy life by merely looking at the demand to be holy and, and, and looking at yourself trying to achieve it. There's, if all you ever do is, is look at the command to be holy and then strive in your own strength to be holy, you will be buried under the weight of your own powerlessness and inability. If you're like, okay, Jesus says turn from my sin. Jesus says I need to be holy. Let me just get to it. That'll last all of maybe two seconds. And you're going to be so disheartened and disillusioned by your own failures that you're going to lose heart in the Lord. Well, we can so easily become that Martin Luther, right? Driving himself mad in his prayer closet, confessing every single sin, feeling the weightiness of his inability to obey even a single command that God had given him. Praise God, that's not where Jesus calls us to look when he calls us to live for holiness. He doesn't call us to look for, to ourselves. We're not to seek holiness by our own strength and, 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 and the sheer demand of the law that is upon us. We, we don't pursue holiness in our own selves and paying attention to what we can do. We pursue holiness by looking to God and by beholding His grace. We pursue holiness by resting our faith and hope in His goodness, ultimately as it has been expressed through our Lord Jesus Christ. We pursue holiness when we focus on the grace that God has already accomplished in us. And out of that, we begin to live that life of thankful worship unto His name in holiness. This is the call of the New Testament. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, right? Paul says, I urge you, brethren, to present your bodies as a living, holy sacrifice acceptable to God. That's what we're all called to do. We are urged to do that. In fact, it's a strong word. Paul's saying, I exhort you to do this. Present your bodies as a living holy sacrifice. But where does that urging come from? Or what is the focus of that pursuit of a, of a holy and living sacrifice? offering ourselves as a holy and living sacrifice to God. Where do we look to find motivation for that? Paul makes that clear right in the beginning of the verse. He says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living holy sacrifice. 
See, true holiness does not spring up from our own willpower or our own determination. It wells up from within us as we consider and understand the way God has been merciful to us. So by the, what I mean by that is compa- uh, um, holiness uh, wells up within us as we think upon and remember the way that God has been gracious to us. The way that God has been compassionate towards us. The the kindnesses of the Lord that have been manifested in our lives. uh, Knowing knowing what we were before God found us, right? This is the the Romans 1 to Romans 3. We We were rebellious. We were sinful. We were receiving all the kindnesses of God and worshiping and serving idols. We were dead in our sin before Him. And then, what did the Lord do for us? He sent redemption through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus became the propitiation for all the sins we've committed. He took the full measure of our sin upon himself and the father was pleased to crush his son for our sake. He raised Jesus up from the dead to prove his victory and then sent forth his spirit to cause us to have new life with him. Look at what God has done for you believer. Look at where he's brought you out of. You were in the cesspool of your sin. You were in the depths of depravity and God came in love and he brought you to life and Jesus name how should you how can you not respond to that in loving holiness to him the power to to pursue holiness is, is it comes by beholding the glory of the salvation and grace that God's already given you by the mercies of God, I appeal to you. Present your bodies. Paul says, in, in the light of all that God has done to save you in grace, present yourselves to him in a living manner and in a holy way. Give your life as a sacrifice of worship. Not, not, not the sacrifice of a guilt offering. Right? Not, not the sacrifice of a sin offering, but the sacrifice of a thank offering. Show your thankfulness for his grace in a life clothed in the splendor of holiness. That's how Christ demanded this man to respond to the grace that had been shown to him. And so, beloved, as, as we end here, and I've gone just a little longer today than last week, but as we end here, I, I want you to take home and take to heart that all the strength you need to live a holy and a godly life will be given to you as you behold and put your trust in the mercies of God. So you want to live holy. You want to, you want to live a more sanctified life. Then spend more time looking to Jesus. Don't look to yourself. Don't look to your failures. Don't look at all the ways and and just dwell upon all the ways that you have failed the Lord. Look to Christ. What was it? Was it Samuel Rutherford who said that for every one look you take to yourself, take ten looks to Jesus? Someone, Someone said that. Rutherford sounds good. This is 2 Corinthians 3.18, right? 317 and 18, we are, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another when we what? When we strive with all our might to attain it, right? No. We are transformed from one degree of glory to another when we behold 
the glory of the Lord as in a mirror shining from the face of Christ. See, it's in beholding that the transformation happens. I, I urge you and encourage you to look to Christ and behold Him. Behold the mercies of God in your Lord Jesus Christ and then go live for Him in that power. Let's pray. Lord, we are desperate for You. And uh, we thank You that You do manifest in so many ways grace and compassion towards us. Lord, like this man, You single us out for so much mercy. And uh, Lord Jesus, I pray that we would hear and take heed to your call to pursue you in holiness. Lord, to turn away from sin out of love for you and to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to you, Father, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, fill us with with ambition to be pleasing in your sight and pave the road before us. Lord, accomplish in us every resolve for good. Help us walk by your power and in your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord for his grace and the blessing of gathering together in his name. And uh, may you leave here with a benediction from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And may the Holy Spirit give you strength and grace to do that well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.